Well, if you will, take your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, and I want to read verses 8 and 9. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would, through the Holy Spirit now, illumine the Scriptures, so that we might understand, that we might believe, that we might put into practice what is being taught by our Lord here in these words. I pray that you would give us special focus and attention. Help us, Father. Again, convict us of sin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. As we return to our main focus here in, in Matthew's Gospel and the, and the systematic exposition of Matthew's Gospel, remember that in this section we've created this picture, this perspective uh, from which we're hearing Jesus speak. It's as if Jesus, with reference to Hebrews chapter 2, our elder brother is explaining to his disciples and to us some of the household rules of the family of God. We are sons and daughters of God by way of spiritual adoption. And we've been adopted not just into a, a universal family of God, of all believers from every time and every place, but we've been born again into a new covenant community that we call the church. We are born into the church as brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of our Father, and siblings of Christ, our elder brother. And so... When we get to verses 15 through 20, Jesus is going to introduce and, and sp speak specifically about the local church. But in these early verses of the chapter, Jesus is trying to drive home this, this main point, or two main points. God, our Father, loves us as His children, but He also hates sin. See, sin causes His children to stumble and to falter in their faith. And at the same time, God seeks our spiritual growth and our spiritual maturity. Therefore, sin, in all of its forms and from all of its various roots, all of the corners of creation, must be done away with. It must be... Um, we must rid it from our lives. That's the point. So we've seen in verse 7, there at the beginning, Jesus pronounces a woe to the world, a, a declaration of condemnation upon the world, this present evil age, for its temptations to sin. Then at the end of verse 7, He pronounces the same type of judgment, a declaration of condemnation, a woe to the one by whom temptations come. So it's not just the world as a system, but there are people in the world that cause temptations to sin, that cause Christians or bring about uh, temptations to sin. So then we come to verses 8 and 9, and the focused, focus shifts again. Now these verses, it would be helpful to note that they are written in what is often called a doublet or a pair. When you read through them, you can see that they could be laid out parallel beside each other. They're both teaching generally the same thing. They're just saying it in, in two different ways. They're given to convey practically the same teaching. He just says it in two verses to teach the same thing. 
So what I want to do is walk through these two verses, this pair of sayings, using three headings. And if you have your sermon guide, you can see there, um, heading number one, desperate times. Heading number two, desperate measures. And then heading number three, dire consequences. And I may have gotten a little too creative for my own good this week. Um, but anyway, those are the three headings that I think will be helpful for us in understanding what Jesus is trying to say here. So, the first heading, desperate times. I think that we would all love to be able to stop at the beginning of verse 7 where Jesus pronounces His woe to the world for His temptations to sin. We sort of agree with that and we understand that. We would usually even agree with His woe to the one by whom temptation comes. We would, in other words, we would be okay if this chapter just, just carried out this consistent comparing and contrasting, mostly contrasting of the world and everybody else and then us over here. But he doesn't do that. In Ephesians chapter 2, we read this statement from the Apostle Paul. He says, You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, we see the obvious problems there. You've got the world and its course, and you got the devil and his powerful influence. And for Christians, these things are easy to see, easy to affirm, easy to point out, easy to, to mark and avoid. In other words, as Christians, we're generally pretty good at pointing away from ourselves and saying, that's the sin over there. There's the world or there's the, the one who might cause me a temptation. We dig our moats and we build our walls and our drawbridges and we run into the storm cellar and we shut the door and we, we hunker down away from all the evil. That's, we're, we're good at that. But we don't come so easy to the rest of Paul's statement in verse 3 of Ephesians where he says, "...among whom we all once lived..." in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, Paul, he goes beyond the world and he goes beyond the devil and he reminds us that the sin problem of humanity is ultimately found, it is rooted in the fact that we lived out the passions of our flesh. We carried out the desires of our bodies and our minds. See, what happens is as soon as we, we hunker down into our storm cellar and we lock the door, hiding from all of the evils of the world, and we light our emergency candle and we, the, the room lights up and we look around, and what do we see? We see us. There we are. We have effectively separated ourselves from all of the external evil, but we have equally as effectively secluded ourselves with us, with our fleshly passions, with our own bodies, with our own minds, with our sinful desires. That's the problem that Jesus is addressing in verses 8 and 9 of this chapter. Look at 8, the beginning of verse 8. We call it 8a and then 9a together. Again, this is a, a doublet, so these would be the parallel statements. At the beginning of verse 8, Jesus says, And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin. In verse 9, parallel statement, And if your eye causes you to sin. You see, the antagonist here is no longer the world. It's no longer other people. The causes for sin, the, the stumbling blocks are now coming from you. And Jesus uses three different body parts to encapsulate the totality of our fleshly inclinations to sin. He begins with the hand. If your hand causes you to sin. Now hands are used figuratively for out, throughout the Bible. They're usually considered the primary means for executing a task, for, for getting something done. The, the big word that we would use for this would be a synecdoche. It is a, a one word label for a large category of things. And so hands are often used as a synecdoche for actions. Your hands could be the activities you do, the hobbies you enjoy, the 
objects that you hold and acquire, tangible things that you touch or use. For example, in Psalm 24 and verse 4, we learn that those with clean hands can ascend the hill of the Lord. Clean hands and a pure heart. Now, of course, the psalmist doesn't mean everybody get your hand sanitizer on before you go to worship. That's not what he's saying. He's saying your deeds must be pure. Your heart must be pure and your deeds must be pure. So your hands could be good. They could also be bad, like in Proverbs 6 where we find out that God hates hands that shed innocent blood. See, hands are, are, are metaphor for the things that you do, actions that you carry out. If your hand causes you to sin, Jesus says, or your foot. Foots or feet, again, are, are metaphorical for the destinations that you set your mind toward, whether physically or metaphorically. So your foot could be representative of a place that you're going, a direction that you're tending toward. Again, Proverbs 6, God hates feet that are swift or that make haste to run to evil. That means God hates those who set their mind to the end goal of evil. You're traveling on that pathway. Again, the foot and the path upon which we walk are often used in Scripture to explain the general bent of a person's life. So again, the previous example in Proverbs 6 would be a bad example. That's a bad way to use your feet, to set your sights upon evil. But in Psalm 23... In verse 3, we learn that the good shepherd leads me in paths of righteousness. Now, the, the psalmist doesn't mean that your feet are actually walking in a, a rutted out place in the ground of righteousness. He's saying your general direction, the bent of your life is goodness and righteousness. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Jonathan Edwards' most famous sermon was preached on Deuteronomy 32:35 and this phrase their foot slideth in due time the warning there is not literally well you're going to slip and fall on the ice he's saying that there's a a slippery slope into sin that if you're not careful you will end up in hell so the feet are metaphorically speaking of the direction and the destination of a person's life and then in verse 9a if your eye causes you to sin. Jesus says that the eye is the lamp of the body. The eye could be a reference to anything you look at or see, objects that you literally behold. Or they could be lustful appetites that you feed. Again, in Proverbs 6, we learn that God hates haughty eyes. And so eyes could be representative of a, a prideful or arrogant persona that you display in your facial expressions. You look prideful, and God doesn't like that. He hates it. Proverbs 21.4, Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, are sin. The eyes, figuratively again, are the means by which we understand. They're the lamp of the body. They, they illuminate. They allow the body to understand the things that are outside the body. So this, your eyes could be used for good. Beholding the glory of the Lord is good. That's not, in, in, in this present age, not a literal looking at Jesus. It is beholding His glory, most often in the uh, words of Scripture, beholding the glory of the Lord. That's a good way to use the eyes. Or it could be bad. Again, lusting after the possessions of others. That's covetousness. That's a bad way to use the eyes. Now the point here, I believe, is this. All three of these things, hands, feet, eyes, they all belong to us. They're natural to us. They are inherent in all people. Only you will give an account for your hands and your feet and your eyes. And you will give an account for your hands and your feet and your eyes. It's you Jesus is talking about. And so He says, if any of these parts causes you to sin. We see the same phrase in both verses. Causes you to sin. And we have our, the same word that's used in verse 5, twice in verse 7, and here in verses 8 and verse 9, scandalon, stumbling block. If your hand or your foot or your eye in some way causes you to stumble in your Christian faith, causes you to 
sin. That's Jesus' hypothetical statement. If something in you is causing you to sin. Now here's where we have to stop and think for just a minute. Because if we don't clarify what's being said, we might be led to some grotesque actions that are not actually warranted in the Scriptures. The question we have to ask is, can your physical hands, your physical feet, your physical eyes, can those actually cause you or make you sin? I believe the answer is an obvious no. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 and 34, Jesus says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? Here's the point. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew 15, 18 and 19, What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, that would be your own desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I, I believe the Scriptures are clear on this issue. The sinful acts that we perform with our bodies, or whether that's through thought or through an actual deed, are the overflow of what is taking place in the heart. Sin comes from within you, and you do it, you work it outward. Again, proof of this would be in Romans 1, where Paul is explaining the process of man's fall into corruption, and he says they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then they began to do what ought not to be done. So, sin begins in the, the mind, where we, we take it in and we ponder it, and then it moves into the heart, where it becomes a desire, and then from that desire, it is carried out by the hands the feet, the eyes, your, your physical body. So what does Jesus mean, therefore, when He says, if your hand or your foot, if your eye causes you to sin, what does He mean? What Jesus is saying, I think, is that these things can become areas or can become... Um, situations, they can provide situations or circumstances where our own desires of the heart, our lusts of the flesh, manifests itself in sinfulness. They can become that. So your hobbies can become instances where you sin by wasting time, by wasting money, by neglecting your family or neglecting your relationship with God. It doesn't have to, but it can the general bent of your life, the direction that you're going, may be progress and advance in the workplace. That's not bad in and of itself to seek to advance. But if it tempts you or if you are tempted to, to cut corners, to be dishonest, to, to be deceptive, to, to wrong, do others, do others wrong in the process, then it can become sinful. The things that your eyes take in, whether it's at the store, on the television, a, a sale paper, that's not necessarily sinful to look and to, to see if you can get a deal or get a coupon. But if those things begin to tempt you to covetousness or frivolous spending or status-seeking purchases or even theft, that's become a temptation to sin. That's what Jesus is saying. These things can become areas where your desires manifest your sinful flesh, your sinfulness. We need to understand that we're living in desperate times because we're living after the fall of man and yet prior to the return of Christ in glory. We're in this, we call it the church age right now. Because of the fall of Adam, now all men are, must not only be aware of external temptations to sin, we're not just watching out for the serpent, or the world, now we are wholly inclined to sin and evil ourselves. 
Not only is sin all around us, sin is in us. Sin has so permeated us from the inside out that now everything we do, whether with our hands, whether with our feet, whether with our eyes, it's all an opportunity. It could be an occasion for the manifestation of our sinful desires. In other words, we are the ones who cause us, us to sin. So with Adam and Eve, they were not inclined to sin, but they were changeable, they were mutable. So the serpent comes and he tempts Eve. She had seen the fruit, she knew where it was, but he puts a thought in her mind, did God really say? Well, you will not surely die. He just knows that in the day that you eat of it, you will be like Him, knowing good and evil. He puts this thought in her mind, and all of a sudden now what she looks at is a delight to the eyes, and it's desire to make one wise. And so she takes and she eats, you see. And from that point on, she gives it to her husband, Adam. Now we're all fallen. From that point on, now it's in us. It's not the serpent. It's inside of us. The world cannot make you sin. The devil cannot make you sin. Again, a little bit of Jonathan Edwards' philosophy here. You'll never do anything that you don't want to do. You can't. No one can make you sin. You sin and I sin because we are sinners. And ultimately it's because we, we want it, we like it, we crave it. It pleases our natural mind to think of sin. It pleases our natural hands to, to touch sin. It pleases our natural feet to run to evil. Now, we wouldn't call it sin and evil. They're just things that become sinful because we are manifesting our sinfulness. This is the condition of man. And these are the desperate times in which we find ourselves. Sinners wholly inclined toward evil. That brings us then to the second heading, desperate measures. If the hands or the feet or the eye causes you to sin, again, making the best use of the doublet here, we'll read 8b and 9b. 8b, cut it off and throw it away. 9b, tear it out and throw it away. What's Jesus saying? I think it's fairly clear. He's saying, rid yourself of it. Remove it. Put a separation between yourself and that thing that's causing you to sin. Cut off the hand. Cut off the foot. Gouge out the eye. Now, these body parts are very dear to all of us. I think we would all agree that even though we have two hands and two feet and two eyes, we would all agree that we haven't been given an extra. We don't have a backup eye. We have two eyes and we need both of them. Uh, we cherish both of our physical hands. We, would, we cringe at stories where someone loses a hand or an arm or literally or even just loses the use of a hand. We imagine how difficult, nearly impossible it would be to live and function in this world with only one hand. The same goes for the feet. God has not given you an extra foot so that if one is cut off or broken or, or incapable of being used, you don't have a backup. He's given us exactly as many feet as we need to walk. You lose a foot, you don't walk. Our feet are cherished. Again, with the eyes, we don't have an extra eye. We have two eyes. When we read the story of Samson having his eyes gouged out, that makes us makes us shudder a little bit. The thought of touching your eyeball for some of us is enough to make you quiver. We constantly tell our kids, be careful, you're going to put someone's eye out. We pull them away from the television. Don't sit so close, you're going to hurt your eyes. You see, we have to have both of our eyes to see three dimensions and to be able to perceive depth. Our eyes are valuable to us. Paul takes a hold of this truth in Ephesians 5 when he says... No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. What's he saying? He's just using that as, as a little bit of a support statement. But he's calling to witness this universal rule of mankind in his right mind. We cherish our physical bodies. We nourish our physical bodies. 
We protect our physical bodies. The first time you're reading the uh, instructions or receiving instructions about putting a car seat into your car with a newborn infant, you're told put it on the driver's side. Why? Because the driver always protects their side first by instinct in the case of an accident. We love our physical bodies. And one might could argue that the hands and the feet and the eyes are the most valuable parts of our bodies when it comes to carrying out the activities and the duties of this life. If someone is in a vegetable state or they are a quadriplegic, we wouldn't say, well, they're fine. That, that's not a, 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 what we would call a, a, a qualitative or a, a good state of life. We don't want to be in that state. We need our hands and our feet and our eyes as well. And these things can be used for good or they can be used for evil. But our Lord says, if anything in your life is becoming an occasion for stumbling, no matter how important you think it is, it must go. Cut it off. Christ commands drastic actions to be taken to remove any agent of temptation. He's saying, desperate times call for desperate measures. And this is not a call for spiritual surgery where we take out our laser-edged scalpel and we ever so carefully, ever so meticulously make incisions to make sure we keep as much of the old man intact as possible while removing the temptations we see. This is a command to enter into the Holy Spirit's butcher shop where we chop and we mangle and we pull and we break hoping that the old man would bleed out on the tile floor leaving him helpless because he needs to be put to death. So Jesus says, cut it off, tear it out, throw it away. Desperate measures. And that leads us to the third heading then, dire consequences. At the end of both verses we read similar and yet differing statements pointing to the same truth. The end of verse 8, It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. 9c, It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So, our Lord, again carrying the metaphor forward, gives us two potential outcomes by way of comparison to the choice that He's presenting. It would be better for you to enter life. Obviously, I think, a, a reference to the eternal life found in Christ. Beginning now, an offer to anyone who will put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and being consummated in eternity, life. And then there's the eternal fire. Or in 9, the hell of fire. Two descriptions of the eternal condition of the damned. Eternal hell consisting of flames of everlasting torment. Now, as in many cases we might wonder how Jesus speaking to His disciples, and of course with a reference to us, how He could offer... Hell as a potential end. In other words, is he trying to threaten them with something that really couldn't happen because, well, they're saved. I mean, I think we would agree if we're born again, we are preserved forever. We're, we're, we're rid of the fear of condemnation. So the answer is that we are preserved. Is this just a scare tactic? When we, Jesus uses this, is He just trying to scare them into not sinning? In a sense, we could say maybe a little bit. But what we need to understand, as in the many cases in the New Testament where these, this kind of terminology is used, this type of teaching is used, is that there are many who profess to be saved, would call themselves Christians now, but time and testing will prove that their profession was false. And we could use the example of Judas Iscariot who was probably in that, this little discussion here. He was there. He probably thought he was one of them. Jesus gives this warning here. He's saying, in essence, failure to deal with your sin in the way that Christ commands is evidence and will be evidence that you didn't know Him, that you were not 
converted. It doesn't matter your profession of faith. If you will not deal with sin properly, you're not a Christian. Should you not heed this warning? Should you refuse to sever from yourself any and all causes to sin, no matter their apparent value, then, then you prove yourself to be unregenerate. If you're the type of person who thinks it's okay to just continue toying with sin, you're not a Christian. Jesus tells us those who endure to the end will be saved. And a part of that endurance, that perseverance, is consistent separation not only from the world and its temptations, but your own inherent sinful desires. That's how we persevere and God preserves us in that. So that's why He can say, He can throw out hell and say, Listen, guys. It would be better to go to heaven maimed, as the older translations would say, maimed, than to go to hell with your body intact. So think on these things. Now, what do we learn from this? Is Jesus saying that as we live in this church, this new covenant body, that we must put our hand to no plow, put our feet in no pathway, or set our eyes on nothing? Don't do, don't go, don't look. Is He saying that anything that could ever potentially provide, provide a temptation to sin must be avoided? Well, I don't think that's His point. Because again, if that were so, then we, we would have to separate ourselves from every endeavor, every path, every motive, every experience. And even then, when we've done all that, we've got ourselves down in our storm cellar, and we've shut the door, and we turn the light on, there we are. We're still there with our own sinful flesh. We've not sufficiently dealt with the problem. So it seems this whole picture is given to elaborate on and add to what he's already said about the world and the one by whom temptation comes. I think he's teaching us multiple things, but two in particular. First, he wants us to see the wickedness or the horror or the awful grotesqueness of your sin. I think we have a generally clear grasp on what sin is now. We, we spent four weeks, weeks answering the question, what is sin? So we, we affirm the sin is an offense against God. We hear and affirm that it's rebellion against God. We hear and affirm that it is a transgressing against God's law. We hear and affirm that to willfully sin is to trample God's own character underfoot. We hear all of that and we say, yes, yes, sin is bad. Four weeks of sin is bad. We agree. And yet when it comes to our own sins, not sin as an overarching idea, our sins, individual, personal, specific sins, the ones that are very close to us, near and dear to us, sins that we simply cannot imagine life without, sins that we tend to make excuses for or, or we tend to tune out the Holy Spirit when we become convicted, Again, the problem is, that, is not that we don't know what sin is. And the problem is not that we don't know what our personal sins are. We know where they are. The problem is we don't do anything about them. Why would we not do anything about it? If we know what sin is and we know where our sins are, why would we not do something about it? And the answer to that why is what our Lord's getting at here. The foundational problem that we have with reconciling what we know to be true about sin and our failure to take the proper steps in ridding ourselves of that sin is not in our inability to understand sin or our knowledge. It's in our inability to understand how viciously evil our sin is and how vehemently God hates our sin. See, we could probably imagine if, I just, if we just sat and thought about how horrible it would be. And this usually works pretty good if you're near a fire or an oven or a, a wood stove. How horrible it would be to stick your hand in it and just let it sit there and burn. That would be awful. Or how terrible it would be to just shove your foot into a wood chipper. Or to, to shove a rotating drill bit into your eye socket. Just to think of it causes us pain and discomfort. We don't like that. We shiver. Why is that? 
because we don't like physical pain. We love our bodies. And yet there sits a God in heaven above all other so-called gods, ruler of heaven and earth who crushes his enemies under his feet, who has the power to destroy both body and soul forever in the eternal flames of hell, and yet we do not flinch at the sins that earn us that damnation, let alone do we strive to rid ourselves of them. We, we don't understand. We, we can't of our minds comprehend why sin is so bad. And so to drive that point home, that, that awfulness of sin, our Lord says, in effect, look at your hand. Look at your foot. Look at your eye. Is that precious to you? It's not, as, it's, it's not worth your sin. It's not worth even the temptation to sin that it could cause you. God is just that holy. We are just that prone to sin. Sin is just that bad. It's really that bad. To rid yourself of sin, to get rid of sin, is worth every travail of the soul that it might cause. It's worth your hand. It's worth your foot. It's worth your eye. Literally and figuratively. I don't think Jesus is saying cut your hand off or cut your foot off, but it would be worth it. If it could get you to stop sinning, it would be worth it. It's worth your most treasured and precious pastime. It's worth your deepest and most heartfelt dreams and aspirations. It is worth your most pleasurable experiences if it will get you to stop sinning. Now how do I know that? Because it necessitated the death of the Son of God on the cross. It cost that much. Every sin of yours laid upon the broad shoulders of King Jesus as He hung on the cross was a future sin when that happened, remember. So, so He saw your sin. He saw your sins, individual, particular, pet sins. You're clinging to them and He considered the remission of those sins and your sanctification unto holiness worth His death. And our Lord wants us to see how bad Sin really is in light of God's holiness. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we are so inherently valuable that Jesus had to die to, to get us, like we're some sort of prize. What I'm saying is that the glory of God in the salvation of sinners is that valuable. Because sin is an affront to God's character, then it's worth the death of His Son to rid the world of it. And if it's worth that, then why would it not be worth our labor and efforts to get rid of it in our lives? So I think he wants us to see that. I think the second implication that's being made here, of, of course, is the drastic measures that must be taken in order to rid your life of sins. Spurgeon once said, Sin has been pardoned at a price so high that we, we dare not trifle with it. Again, if it costs that much, then why would we play with it? We, we, we want to take whatever it costs, whatever measure it takes to rid our lives of it. In Hebrews 12, 4, the author there speaking almost rhetorically says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Do you get that? You're not trying. You're not even bleeding yet. You've not even struggled that bad. I mean, I wonder how many of us have battle scars from waging war against our sin. How many of us have bruises? The Apostle Paul says, I discipline my body to keep it under control. The, again, the older translations, I buffet my body. I'm, I'm pummeling myself into submission to keep it under control. How many of us have spiritual nubs from our, our warfare? How many of us are wearing spiritual eye patches from our warfare against sin? Not many. Again, you're not even bleeding. You, you act like you, that sin is bad, but you haven't even resisted to the point of shedding your blood yet. You're not bleeding yet. In Hebrews 12 and verse 14 the author again says, strive, and later for, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive, pursue, chase after, 
oftentimes translated persecute. Go after the holiness. There is a standard of holiness that God has set. It's the holiness that we are to strive for, make every effort to attain. We are to chase after it, take every drastic measure in order to achieve it. Without that holiness, we will not see heaven. We will not see the Lord. Again, you prove yourself unregenerate when you do not strive for holiness. Now, does that mean that we're going to be sinlessly perfect in this life? Of course not. It's the perseverance. It's the chase. It's the, the working after it. It's the desperate measures that you're willing to undertake in order to get rid of sin. So, what method has God given us to take these heavenly truths from His Word and, and churn them out in godly living? Again, I think it's helpful to start with the mind and then engage the heart. And having our heart's affections stirred, we will then begin to produce actions. So we start with the mind. The mind takes in information. So how is the mind educated in the things of God regarding this issue? Well, I think it's obvious. Study the Scriptures so that we might know the heart of God concerning our sins. The problem here is that as creatures, our hearts and our minds are so separate from God's that we struggle to see anything the way God sees it. Even when the Bible talks about the sinfulness of sin, like saying things like, He is a purer eyes than to look at evil. He cannot, he cannot look at wrong or behold evil. It, it's still using human language to try to convey the Creator's heart. It doesn't work. So we have to just continue to study intently to know the heart of God. When, uh, when a human author tries to explain to us, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but using human language, tries to explain to us the heart of the Creator, it's always going to fall short. And so I think it might be helpful to read the accounts of how God deals with people both in the covenant community and outside the covenant community when they sin. When we see how God acts towards sin, we learn more about it than if we're just to say, well, God hates sin. For example, in Genesis chapter 3, God cursed the entire human race over one sin. All people, all of creation. In Genesis chapter 7, God blotted from the face of the earth everything on the earth in whose nostrils was the breath of life he killed them all. In Genesis 19, God rains down fire from heaven and destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. And we think, well, that's... I mean, they were... You know, look at how they acted. Lot's wife turned around to see it and she was turned into a pillar of salt. Leviticus chapter 10. Nadab and Abihu offered incense that was being burned on unauthorized fire. God roasted them where they stood. In Joshua chapter 7, Achan, his sons, his daughters, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, all of his possessions were stoned and then burned because he kept for himself a coat and some gold and some silver. 1 Samuel 13, Saul lost his kingdom because he offered a sacrifice to God. 2 Samuel 6, Uzzah is struck dead for touching the Ark of the Covenant. In 1 Kings 13, a prophet is mauled to death by a lion because he was tricked by the words of another prophet who lied to him. In 2 Kings chapter 2, 42 young boys are mauled to death by a bear for making fun of Elisha. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira are struck dead for lying. Read those stories. Look into them. And as you read them, ask yourself... How does God feel about sin? It will begin to come more clear. This will help you understand. Study to know the heart of God, but then we must engage our own hearts. Studying to know facts does not just immediately change our hearts about sin, especially when we have sins that are precious to us. Thomas Brooks says secret sins commonly lie nearest the heart. We all have sins that are really close, that maybe no one knows about, they're precious. And it's going to take more than just intellectual knowledge to have our affections moved enough to change. And so, what do we do? After we've read of God's 
dealings with sin, we've had our minds enlightened, what do we do? Well, first, I think it would be helpful to pray. Pray for a heart after God's heart. God seeks obedience to His clear commands. God treasures heartfelt obedience. Not those who run ahead of Him trying to orchestrate their own creative and yet half-hearted obedience mixed with their human invention. That's not what God wants. That's what we learned with Saul. Saul just offered a sacrifice. He just got a little impatient. He did it the wrong way. Kings are not supposed to offer sacrifices. And so he was worshiping, but he was impatient. God wanted a king after his own heart. One that would wait right with God and walk right with Him and be obedient. Now all of our hearts are this way. We think that since we are made in God's image, that that somehow means God is somewhat, some, somewhat like us. You see, that's backwards. We're a little bit like Him, but He's not like us. So the only way that we could ever know what God would have us to do is if He would explicitly tell us. And even then, our hearts tend toward creativity rather than obedience because we think He's like us. Our kids bring us a picture and we think, oh, this is so cute. I love it. Your kids make a mess trying to do something helpful. You say, well, it's still great that you tried. God's not like that. God has explicitly told us what to do. He wants us to obey. And so we begin by acknowledging that distinction and we pray that God, through the Holy Spirit, would transform our hearts, our affections, our desires, our, our pleasures to line up with His revealed will. So we pray, God, give me a heart after your heart. And then we pray for the spiritual power to live in a way consistent with God's heart. See, once we've sought God's help in transforming our hearts, we have to have the power of God to help us to live consistent with that. You see, we struggle at, at every point. We, we constantly need His help. It's always going to be easier, even when our mind's enlightened. And, and, and our hearts begin to change, it's still easier to do things our own way. And so we have to pray for God to give us Holy Spirit power to carry out in our lives what God is doing in our hearts. So pray for that power. Ask for His heart. Pray for power to live consistently. And then pray for the power to sever any precious things from your life that are leading to sin. One of the first things that you're going to have to do when you begin to live out what the Holy Spirit is working in and empowering you to do is you will have to begin to sever things from your life. And just like in our text, these things are often very precious to us. We don't want to get rid of them. We wonder, how could I ever make it without this? What am I going to do with my free time if I can't watch this or do this? What will I ever do? What will the world think of me if I don't do this? What will all of my friends think if I stop doing this with them. We struggle with what it's going to be like to cut off the hand or the foot or gouge out the eye that's to everyone else seems so harmless. But it's a temptation to sin. And so we pray, God, help me to make this change, to cut this thing off. Help me to turn. Help me to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which I've been called. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't, even, you can't even rid yourself of sin without His help. And then after we've studied and after we've prayed, it comes time to act. We must work out what the Spirit is working in. So, pay attention to your hands, your feet, and your eyes. This is the, this is the practical. Watch your activities. Watch your travels, watch your plans, watch your dreams, watch your motivations, watch your experiences, watch the whole of your life, all of your regular routines, and ask yourself, where are the sinful habits being produced? We might say, which of these things most often leads me to a sinful way of thinking, a sinful way of treating others? A, a, a wasting of my time. Which of these things is leading me to neglect my duties as a husband, as a wife, as a father, as a mother, as a sibling? Do any of these things tend to take priority in my life over the private means of grace? Reading the Bible and prayer. 
You've got to pay attention. Look at your life. Then, take note of where the temptations lie. You begin to see areas of laxity or laziness, cultural conformity, ungodliness, living contrary to biblical patterns. When you see them, make a note. Either mental or actually write it down. Don't assume that you're going to remember it. Don't give opportunity to your flesh to reject it or rebel against what the Holy Spirit is convicting you of. So make a note. We'll look at your life. Make notes. And then as you begin to sever things from your life, look for godly habits to replace the severed ones. Look for godly habits. Maybe you already know what the godly habit is. You know, this is the time when everybody else is doing this, but I'm always off doing this. I need to stop doing this and come over here. You already know. Or perhaps you have no clue. You're, you're thinking, I don't know what I'm going to do. If I can't go here and do this or sit and do this, I don't know what I'm going to do. And so, study and find out. Perhaps part of your time, your, your new godly habit will be studying the Scriptures and prayerfully considering what you could do to replace that wasted time. That's what people did before we had TVs. They sat around trying to figure out ways to, to be more godly. Engage yourself in the pursuit of godliness, in other words. Live your life as a whole as a Christian. Remember Jesus says, when the unclean spirit's gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So it will be with this evil generation. In other words, you've got to put in good when you're taken out bad. You've got to replace it. Always replace sinful habits with godly habits. Study to understand God's Word concerning your sin, God's heart concerning your sin, and do what it takes to rid your life of sin. Now when we come to the Lord's table... We're not coming as those who have followed all the steps, have taken all of the precautions, have, have walked through them, have rid their lives of all of their sins and every known temptation. That's not what this is. This is a means of grace. So we come as those who've seen the vast temptations of the world, who have seen the multitude of sins in our own flesh. The Lord's table is a table for sinners to come and tackle these things, receive the grace to tackle these things in the power of the Holy Spirit. Our Lord Jesus Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father so that the Holy Spirit would come and apply to our hearts the grace and the power that was won for us on the cross. So we come to the Lord's table and by faith the Holy Spirit gives us grace upon grace. Grace to study, grace to confront sin, grace to make changes, grace to live in a manner that honors Christ. We get grace here. So, as always, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith and as the elements are passed, look and see that you need grace and receive it here at the Lord's table.